Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And today, we're going to catch up on recent launches that have taken place, some of the new things that are in orbit, and the latest SpaceX news, including some updates on Starlink. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student-faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. All right, so the first headline we have today is SpaceX Flight Control Center plans revealed for Cape Canaveral. Yeah, so this is really exciting. Uh, We've seen plans for huge transformations at the Space Coast in Central Florida. Uh, We talked about on a prior episode the brand new Blue Origin factory. They're building right outside Kennedy Space Center uh, to build and then eventually launch uh, new Glenn rockets from. And obviously SpaceX has leases at two pads, one 39A within Kennedy Space Center and then pad 40 in Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. And they have hangars and launch control centers already there. They've been using them for six years plus now. Uh, However, this is a whole separate, even more ambitious uh, development from those. Right. And unlike Blue Origin, SpaceX won't be building their rockets there. So SpaceX is still going to be building Falcon 9s in Hawthorne, California. And these plans are for the Flight Control Center, which is a huge control tower and also a hangar to store uh, boosters that are either waiting for launch or in refurbishment if they need maintenance or something like that, right? Yeah. So uh, the main source of this information is the environmental assessment that SpaceX had to post uh, to get approval. Um, And basically, they want to build a a facility. Um, If you've been to Kennedy Space Center, the Visitor Center, and have a sense of the geography, the Visitor Center, which is where they have a rocket garden where Space Shuttle Atlantis is is located, is located kind of just outside the border of the Space Center. And there's basically a freeway or a very large road uh, that links uh, Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and what you would consider to be NASA Kennedy Space Center, where the VAB, the Launch Control Center is, and all of that equipment. And so uh, the new center is kind of halfway between the Visitor Center and the VAB, which is ironically the complete mirror image of where the Blue Origin facility is. So they're relatively close together on the site. That's going to be a really interesting skyline. Like That's something I never really thought of is that when you have a bunch of different companies all in the same area launching rockets together, um, that turns into a skyline. You've got the VABs, you've got the launch towers. That's kind of weird. It's particularly unique because Florida is so flat, and in that area specifically is mostly marshes and swamps. And so, you know, as as soon as you get probably 20 or 30 feet above the uh, ground level, above the tree line, you can see all of the current and old pads. Um, But again, uh, this tower is kind of a, the most exciting uh, structure as part of this proposal. And basically it's kind of a, you know, when I first saw the the really basic rendering, I was like, that's kind of like a, like Stark Tower or Avengers Tower like thing, where basically it's a large tower that elevates a very large room 
with panoramic windows. And the idea for this is a launch control center and then kind of a launch viewing center for SpaceX. Because right now, all of their launchers are conducted basically out of a like single-story office building. Uh, very, very small kind of uh, dainty building uh, towards the other side of, of Cape Canaveral. And they don't have line of sight for the pads. And so to be able to get elevated several hundred feet above the ground, you can now see uh, pad 39A, you can see SLC 40. Uh, you have that field of view. Obviously, they have camera feeds and telemetry feeds, so they don't necessarily need to see the rocket, but it does help to have that kind of visual connection. Uh, and the other um, corollary or analogy is that it's kind of like an air traffic control tower that you would see at a normal airport uh, because they plan on launching a lot of rockets, but also landing rockets at the Cape. Uh, part of the Environment Tech report is up to 63 landings in a year. Um, so that is a another doubling of what they currently project to do uh, best case this year or next year. Uh, so it's definitely very aggressive. Right. And um, you did mention like a futuristic design, forward-thinking design. And that's right there in the, the press release. I saw a quote that said that the building would be architecturally distinct. And, um, you know, this falls right in line with uh, SpaceX pushing the boundaries for what's accepted and normal. They're trying to be different. They know this is going to get a lot of attention. And, you know, to bring a customer to a control tower where you can watch your own payload take off on a rocket, I mean, that's huge when you're trying to sell rides, right? The plans also did call for conference rooms and things like that. So we know this will be a usable space and not just, you know, they're not just building it to look at the rockets when they're launching it. It'll be usable um, in terms of business and operations. Yeah, the customers are definitely a really big part of this. Um, you know, in their current control center, they have a little bit of space for the payload, uh, the customer to have their own temporary offices and hold meetings and to monitor their aspects of the payload while it's on the while it's in the hangar being integrated and also on the pad. Um, and because it's close to the Air Force Base, it's sometimes hard to get permission um, for foreign nationals to kind of get that close. Um, so being technically off-site should be a little bit easier and be on NASA property should be a little bit easier for them, but also just means more space um, in that control complexes. You know, more offices, you can have more people from the company, more SpaceX engineers monitoring everything. Um, you're definitely going to have, you know, the latest and greatest information technology there. So you get good video uh telemetry and all that kind of uh all that kind of data that you need for launch but uh the the more exciting part i want to say the more exciting part but another exciting part is the hangar they're building so we've talked about uh some of the other kind of land deals spacex has been doing at cape canaveral and they recently leased a old building that was used for space hat which was a payload for the space shuttle um, well, this was a payload for the space shuttle during the space shuttle era, and that building, that processing building, basically remained empty, and that's at Port Canaveral. And they recently leased that building, and they're planning to renovate it, kind of strip down the interior to store returned rocket stages, because as they can continue to produce these and launch them and then return them, uh, you run out of places to put them. 
the existing hangers, uh, SLC 40 can hold, well, I think, one booster. Uh, and the Pad 39A hanger can hold three boosters. But if you, say, have a Falcon Heavy, uh, you need all that space for the flying boosters and not uh, storage. And so they needed space to kind of, you know, shuffle these away. And this new hanger, about 133,000 square feet of space. So that's a huge hanger, much larger than the one they used to integrate the rockets for launch and that's going to be for refurbishment and because of the way it's placed you know it has direct road access to their existing pads they'll be able to you know put it on a, a truck or their dedicated shuttle hauler that they're using for stages get it to the hangar do the refurbishment and then send it right back out for launch relatively quickly uh, which is it's kind of exciting to see those kind of, of structures built you know if you look at a modern airport you know, there's the passenger terminal where people board the planes, but, you know, on hubs, you know, say for Atlanta, a huge majority of the space is taken up by all those maintenance hangers that are, you know, doing the repairs, doing the inspections for all the hundreds and thousands of planes that fly through that airport. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see all these facilities grow and expand. And it's really cool that they have to publish these and do like public studies so we get to find all the information. They have plans to have a their own rocket garden on site. So the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center has lots of classic rockets on display, but in the rough uh, site outline that's in the environmental report, looks like there's a public access road um, that could fit a half dozen or a dozen boosters in upright or a horizontal position, uh, which would be really astonishing to go see and visit. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, so let's move on to another piece of SpaceX news. So teslarati.com recently published an article that showed SpaceX is bringing a lot of the different components for Starlink satellites in-house. SpaceX has demonstrated this vertical integration for Falcon 9s, which means that instead of subcontracting out all the different components, they take on the engineering and the manufacturing to all build it under one roof or as much as possible. That's what's allowed them to maintain quality standards, keep up their production, and integrate things faster, right? So it's kind of different from old space, and it's really cool to see that make its way into large-scale satellite production. So a few of the examples of the components that SpaceX is now um, going to be designing, building in-house are the satellite structures themselves, uh, optical data interlinks, on-orbit phased array antennas, uh, digital signal processing software and hardware, solar arrays, battery systems, power electronics, and a whole lot more. Do you think this is just a natural evolution of the SpaceX philosophy, or do you think this is the only option they can go to build Starlink at scale? I definitely think it's an example of the SpaceX philosophy but the whole project is very radical. Like it doesn't, it, it's hard to compare it to anything SpaceX has done before where, you know, initial development of Falcon 9 was, you know, partially funded by NASA. Uh, Starlink completely self-funded. And because of the, seer, the, because of the sheer scale they're talking about, uh, 4,000 plus satellites in the initial constellation and 12,000 total satellites, uh, for phase two, like those are mind-boggling numbers. 
just a crazy amount of launches, crazy number of satellites. And even with dramatically increased flight rates, we just talked about, you know, 60 plus launches a year from Florida, you still have to build a constant stream of satellites every day, every week for years and years and years to build the constellation and then to maintain it because these satellites are only supposed to have a lifespan of five to seven years before they're deorbited and ideally replaced with something with newer, better technology. So it's this massive um, logistical undertaking, which has never been attempted in space to put up this much uh, hardware uh, over this amount of time uh, at this scale. Because uh, again, a lot of stuff in space, even with the standardized buses we see out of Boeing and Airbus and Lockheed, they are standardized, but you're building five per year, maybe at the high end. And that's really not mass production. But when you're talking about building five per week, it's not what you would say mass production in like the auto industry, but it is definitely an order of magnitude or more uh, in volume. Yeah. And I would definitely, um, you brought up the auto industry, and this is a point I wanted to make in that, um, you know, it, it's Elon. Uh, Tesla has very automated their manufacturing process for Teslas. Um, but spacecraft are different. You know, I've walked the assembly line for Merlin engines before. They're lined up and you can walk down this pathway and see engines at each stage of development. And they just, you know, there's specific steps to do. Uh, the technicians install the parts, they make the welds, they install the plumbing, and then hand it off to the next person that has their own specialized job. And they can crank out these engines that they need nine of them for each Falcon 9 core. You know, that's a lot of volume, especially for space hardware. But now you're talking about satellites and way, way more. So you can't automate it and just say like, oh, we'll have robots do it and we'll do it the same way every time. Um, I guess you could, but spacecraft have a lot of delicate instruments, a lot of different disciplines, and they need specialized environments. You need to control humidity. You need to have clean rooms that control um, particulates in the air. So I don't know if they're going to be able to keep up with vertical integration on these satellites because unless they open a gigafactory for Starlink, which, you know, knowing Elon is, is a possibility, I guess. Yeah, it will definitely be very interesting to see what kind of manufacturing infrastructure gets built to support this. And like you brought up Merlin engine production and, and SpaceX has said that they are able to pretty much put out one Merlin engine per day. And those are about one ton each, about a million dollars uh, that we can estimate. Uh, the satellites are going to be going to weigh less, but they're going to cost much more, and they're much more complicated. As much as we like to talk about the complexities of, of rocket science and that kind of engineering, satellites are more complex systems, more tightly integrated. They are harder to build. And you know, if you look at the traditional timeline to build a, a satellite, uh, you might be you see timelines of 18 months to two years from the order coming through to the final payload ready to be shipped to the launch site. And when you're talking about needing to really put out one satellite per day uh, continuously for, for decades plus, which is uh, just a ridiculous uh, kind of thing to perceive, that means that if it if it would take two years to produce one satellite, you need space on your assembly line or the lead time for 600 satellites in progress. 
Um, and like, what kind of building does that look like? Or what does that uh, assembly line and management system look like? Now, um, I, I do think that they're going to try to get that timeline to be much shorter and might much tighter loop. But you do have these, you know, scaling up is hard. Uh, and learning how to build one, or in this case, building two, uh, can be 90% of the work. And then the, the 10% to make a, more of them takes 90% more of the time. Uh, so it's definitely going to be a really intense challenge. Yeah, I definitely see uh, a few things. On the, at least on the table for SpaceX coming up. Um, one of them is starting sort of small, go for you know 100 satellites at a time and see what they can do on their own. More than likely, I think what's going to happen is they're going to develop the process, develop the tooling and everything that, they, that would be needed to build it, and then maybe look elsewhere, not subcontract, but maybe work with a, an outside company that's used to building building lots of satellites, maybe buy them. Who knows? Maybe hire all the people that work there um, or buy their facilities. Um, SpaceX is, you know, they're growing. They're getting a lot more money. Starlink has the prospects of, you know, enormous amounts of money. So if you weigh the costs and benefits, you know, maybe that's a good investment for them. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's one of those things where, like, there is no company really out there that's doing mass production of satellites at that scale. Uh, we have OneWeb that partnered with Airbus and have built uh, their own factory to produce large number of satellites. They want to do somewhere on the several hundred satellites as part of their constellation. And OneWeb, you know, is a competitor, direct competitor to Starlink. But again, that's an order of magnitude less satellites than what SpaceX has to produce. Well, people like to point to Tesla. It's like, oh, well, Elon Musk owns Tesla. And Elon Musk owns SpaceX and Tesla produces cars. Maybe you can pull talent from there. Maybe. Um, but again, the processes uh, of the auto industry, you know, there's reports of the tolerances and Model 3s being off, you know, half an inch, an inch, and people getting really upset. But in the grand scheme of things, the car, you know, it's got its four wheels and motors and it can drive just fine with those misalignments. When it comes to putting, building something for space that has to survive a rocket launch, if you have something that is half an inch off or a full inch off, that could mean a catastrophic failure because the vibrational um, modes are different or the structure has been weakened. And so you need a lot more precision there. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to kind of evaluate that. Even at 99% yield, that's like if you build, 90, if you build 100 satellites and one is you know too out of tolerance to launch that's so much money and resources and time that would go to waste so uh, the the yield has to be like close to 100 percent uh if not 100 percent we're years away from seeing operational satellites uh, get into orbit and elon musk mentioned that uh besides tintin a and b which are two test satellites there's going to be another final re final revision of test satellites launched. But I could see that, you know, once they have that assembly line, you know, initially built out, uh, them building, as you mentioned, building a hundred in a certain way, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, scaling that up, building another hundred, and having maybe five or ten different kinds of satellites um, as part of the first constellation, just as they iteratively improve. And that's, you know, uh, that's, a, I think, a hallmark of SpaceX. 
is iteratively improving while under operation. And that's what they did with reusable Falcon 9, where every test mission was for a paid customer and the test and the test data was just a bonus on top. If they can try out a new, a new manufacturing technique, put those satellites up, eventually hit their goal of having an operational constellation, uh, but they've been able to iterate 10 different production methods or 10 different satellite designs, uh, I definitely think that fits their ethos. This might be unreasonable, but what if SpaceX would do like a joint R&D expedition with a company like SCS whose main focus is satellites? Do you think it's worth it for SpaceX to put up 70% of the R&D cost, maybe even scale it back a little bit, relinquish some of some of the profits in order to have a better chance of success and an accelerated timeline to make Starlink a reality? Do you think it's worth it for them to do that? And do you think it's feasible for that to happen at all? I'm not exactly sure. I think there there's been this open question of, well, SpaceX's main customers by volume. So NASA is their biggest single customer, but the largest number of SpaceX customers are geostationary communication satellites. And SES has paid for several launches. And SpaceX with Starlink is entering the communication satellite business and directly or indirectly competing with companies like SES and Iridium and Echostar. And so that, that question has been like, well, will these companies be comfortable with using SpaceX when SpaceX is, you know, looks like they're directly competing with them? And I don't have an answer to that question. Um, and that's something we'll see. Um, from what I've seen and uh, based on some comments by the Iridium uh, president, uh, they don't see them uh, being in direct competition. Um, which is a good sign to hear um, from the executives. And so from that context, um, a partnership doesn't seem that likely because, you know, there is that kind of uh, elephant in the room. Um, but who knows? Uh, to get to the long story straight, it's like SES and Iridium and those kind of companies, you know, it looks like they're going to be direct competitors. And to have them kind of come together is going to would be interesting and I can't see a clear direct benefit. Um, and one of the things uh, that we're talking about that the the Tesla Rati source uh, information is SpaceX job postings where they're hiring or they have open positions for a ton of um, raw talent to you know design the hardware that goes in the satellite, design the buses, and more importantly designing the ground stations. Uh, Elon Musk, when he originally announced the concept, was like, we need to get a uh, electronically steered array um, antenna box about the size of a pizza box down to about $300 so that consumers can afford to purchase them and install them in homes and, and businesses. And, you know, uh, companies like SES, they build satellites, but they also build the ground terminals. And so if if there was going to be a partnership, I would say it would have been for the ground terminals because not only do they have the experience building ground terminals, they have the customer contacts and kind of the business infrastructure to sell telecommunications to people and to companies. Um, 
But with these postings, even that window's kind of closed off. So it looks like SpaceX is trying to pull in all the cards and cover every um, possible need internally, um, which would preclude the opportunity with the preclude the opportunity of them working with another company. Uh, that's very well said. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'd like to move on uh, on something a little bit fun. Um, ridiculous. <laughs> so Elon Musk is uh, being Elon Musk again on Twitter. Um, he did one of those things where he posts, I'll read the tweet in a minute, but he posts a, a tweet where you think it's joking. And then someone asks a question like, oh, you, how, how would that work? And then he responds with something that makes you think, wait, is he for real? So Elon Musk uh, tweeted, SpaceX option package for a new Tesla Roadster will include about 10 small rocket thrusters arranged seamlessly around the car. These rocket engines dramatically improve acceleration, top speed, braking, and cornering. <laughs> um, and someone suggested, you know, would this use cold gas thrusters like the ones that are used on Falcon 9 for attitude control? This is Elon again. Using the configuration you describe, plus an electric pump to replenish air in the COPV, when car power draw drops below max pack power output, makes sense. But we are going to go a lot further. Is he for real? What? Yeah, this is one of those crazy things where um, Tesla had their annual shareholders meeting and uh, they had announced the Tesla Roadster 2 at the Tesla Semi unveiling last fall. And they surprised everyone. Here's the Tesla Roadster 2 with some very crazy performance specs. And at the shareholder meeting, he said, oh, well, there's going, there's right now, there's the $200,000, so very expensive base model for the Roadster. And the founder's edition is $250,000. So these are not cheap cars. And then he mentioned that there would be a SpaceX option package. And so people were kind of guessing, like, what does that mean? And he just kind of mentioned the term. And then on this Twitter says like, no, the, the SpaceX option package, it's not, it's not just like a white roadster with maybe a SpaceX logo or maybe, you know, a don't panic, which was what the, the roadster on the Falcon Heavy launch had in its center console. It's like, no, it's, it's a, it's a rocket car. It has rocket engines on it. Um, which is at first glance crazy and on second glance even more crazy. Um, but some important things to break down is, uh, he mentions COPVs. Um, which we've talked about in the past. These are composite overwrap pressure vessels, basically metal pressure tanks. Uh, that are then wrapped in carbon fiber and various um, binders, etc., to make it yeah, yeah um, carbon fiber and resin to make an extremely strong uh, pressure vessel. And these are used on Falcon 9 to contain helium uh, to repressurize the tanks as the fuel depletes. And they're also used for the compressed uh, nitrogen thrusters on board the stage for orientation. And they're extremely rugged. Um, there's been, rep uh, not reports, but uh, recovered COPV bottles that came from uh, second stages that have re-entered the atmosphere. And the COPVs were so tough as to survive. And part of the mitigation for the Amos 6 fueling incident is a complete redesign of the COPV. So they're even stronger, even tougher than before. And the at the heart of it is to take one of those COPVs, put those in the back seat. So it's a it's now it's a full two-seater instead of a four-seater. 
and then have air jets around the car uh, to, you know, change the performance characteristics. And that's um, very crazy. And it's, it's hard to kind of mesh that with, you know, our traditional concept of a car and our traditional concept of what's safe on the road. When, when you think about it and you take a step back and you say, is this possible? Um, actually, it kind of is right so um like you mentioned uh just a couple uh compressed air thrusters uh that would obviously be uh have enough thrust to actually influence the dynamics of the car we assume that's a prerequisite they've already got the copvs easy um there's already this car called the zenvo tsrs um which takes some uh, pages out of uh, airplanes books and modern aircraft have fly-by-wire systems where the control systems um, can automatically change in order to control the aerodynamics of the vehicle. So this car applies that concept to the rear spoiler. So when it's braking, the, the spoiler acts as a big air brake. When you turn one direction, the spoiler turns to provide uh, downforce and counter rotation um, to the car. So instead of being a fixed wing, um, it's actually actively basically doing fly-by-wire in the car. So now you think about this in, in terms of rockets, it's the same idea, just instead of using a moving control surface, you're using the same things that help guide in a Falcon 9 um, when it's doing its boost back. I think this would be super interesting if they can get a thruster that has shoots inert gas at high enough thrust this is definitely feasible and i have a feeling it's going to turn into some passion project between spacex and tesla um, employees um, i don't think they'll make that many this seems like it'll be like a one-of-a-kind track car but it's going to turn some heads and i think he's serious no it's definitely going to be really interesting to see um and uh, elon mentioned that with compressed air, uh, a compressed air tank has less energy density than a battery, but has much higher uh, peak power output. And so Tesla cars have massive lithium ion battery packs. And he mentioned in his tweet, an electric compressor to refill the tank. But you only can pull so much power per second or energy per second power out of the battery into the motors. Um, but with that tank at high pressures, you can deliver, you know, that quick boost uh, to accelerate the car a little bit faster. Um, as Phil, you mentioned, help in cornering and downforce. But even on a, a much uh, less level, if there's enough thrusters in the, in the right points, even changing some of the aerodynamics of, of, you know, how the air is moving over the car with a small burst of gas uh, would improve performance in unique ways. And so it's, it's definitely there's endless possibilities of how the Tesla engineers uh, could implement this. And even from Elon's tweets, like he says that, you know, we're going to keep pushing to make this car, you know, he wants this car to be the best in the world uh, and kind of take the crown away from electric or take the crown away from gas cars. Uh, so it's definitely going to be one of those crazy bleeding edge engineering projects that Tesla likes to dive into. But on the other side of things, uh, price is definitely going to be uh, definitely astronomical fitting for a SpaceX car because these COPVs, uh, the new models are made of Inconel, which is a very expensive uh, material. Plus you have the carbon overwrap 
uh, which is a very relatively slow process. And, you know, I could see one of these bottles, uh, this is an uninformed opinion, but it could be, you know, 50000 $100,000 for just the bottle, uh, which is a 50% increase on the base cost of the car, plus you have adding in 10 rocket thrusters, um, which are really just valves um, with expansion nozzles on them, so they're not that crazy complex, but that is going to cost a huge sum of money. And then you have the factor that, that these are going to be, even if the Roadster 2 enters some form of mass production, these are going to be relatively so much different. They're going to have to be basically handmade. Um, and there are plenty of handmade hypercars out there, um, but they cost one to two million dollars each. Um, so it's going to be a fun time to see what this uh, SpaceX rocket car actually costs. Yeah, money money is not in the uh, constraints. It's not in the list of constraints for this car, <laughs> for sure. All right, so let, let's move on to um, more scientific stuff. Uh, still on the topic of SpaceX, they continue to launch uh, cargo resupply missions to the International Space Station aboard the Dragon capsule. And in the June 28th launch, which is coming up, um, TJ, what are some of the things that are going to be in the cargo bay? Yeah, so this is actually a really varied and kind of interesting cargo mission. There's a lot of unique experiments going up. Uh, and the first one is something that when you see a picture of it, just looks completely ridiculous. And it's called Simon. And it is a AI-powered robot uh, assistant slash companion for the astronauts. Like the thing from Flubber. Exactly. It is, it is a modern-day, real-life uh, Flubber robot. Uh, so basically, it's about the size of a medicine ball. Uh, it weighs five kilograms, but it's designed to operate in zero-g. And so instead of something like Robonaut, um, which was operating on the ISS, which had kind of a humanoid appearance and humanoid leg or humanoid arms to manipulate things, this is a ball with air jets. And so it's able to navigate the zero-g environment very naturally and orient, orient itself and interact with crew members. And this is um, a research project uh, developed by Airbus um, with partnership with the ESA, and it's using IBM Watson, um, which honestly used to be a specific thing at IBM and has now kind of become the brand for IBM's kind of machine learning and cloud computing um, products. But basically, um, SIMON, which stands for Crew Interactive Mobile Companion, is designed to be a robot to kind of be friends with the astronauts in the ISS. Uh, so it's designed to kind of communicate and work alongside the astronauts while they're doing maintenance. Uh, it has a screen on its face that would have schematics of the interior of the module or the specific science experiment or repair uh, exercise they're working on and kind of just kind of be a partner, be a friend, which is really an interesting way to put wait, it. Wait, wait. So when you say be a friend, you don't mean in a social way, right? You mean like in a helper. I mean, I mean in a social way. Okay. It's, okay. That's a, that's stretching it. Uh, th it's, that's, that's how the ESA wanted to pitch it as a friendly robot. So I can say, I can see how this would be extremely useful um, for when a, an astronaut um, is on a spacewalk, uh, for example, uh, preoccupied, deep focus, and they can't really take their focus away or 
use a free hand to, like you said, look up a schematic or, um, you know, they can't remember how much torque they should put on a certain bolt. And so they ask Simon, you know, Simon says, how much torque is in this bolt? And then <laughs> uh, and then they find out hands free. Um, I think it's a really cool demonstration. Um, and I think that's the, the purpose is kind of like not not necessarily proof of concept, but to basically say like, hey, this is possible. We should start thinking about this uh, more seriously. Here's a, a sampler of possible ideas that, you know, could be more developed in the future. Uh, I definitely think on deep space missions um, to Mars, for example, having a bunch of these floating uh, robots uh, that are helpers, ideally the ones that could interact with the world around it, or at least interact with the computer's automated systems in the spacecraft would be very helpful um, to letting the astronauts focus on doing what they're doing um, and maybe take care of the tedious tasks or um, uh, something like that. Like take a, take a little bit of that load off of the astronauts' minds. Yeah. So this is coming from the official Airbus press release on Simon. Uh, which says, Simon is designed to support astronauts in performing routine work, for example, by displaying procedures or, thanks to its neural AI network and its ability to learn, offering solutions to problems. It uses Watson's AI technology from the IBM cloud and with its face, voice, and artificial intelligence becomes a genuine colleague on board. With Simon, crew members can do more than just work through a schematic view of prescribed checklists and procedures. They can also engage with their assistant. In this way, Simon makes work easier for the astronauts when carrying out everyday routine tasks, helps increase efficiency, facilitates mission success, and improves security, as it can also serve as an early warning system for technical problems. If you're listening at home, uh, this might you might be rolling your eyes, but I, I swear to God, this that's useful. If you're doing a checklist every day and it's the same checklist every day, you're going to skip a few steps and you're going to make a mistake. If there's that little companion to make it interesting enough for your brain to not skip over a step or to catch it, like it said, give you an early warning, you know, I think that is actually very valuable. Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting to see, A, can this kind of robot work and can it work in the workflow? And B, do astronauts accept it? Um, Because... There's, you know, a history of when astronauts get micromanaged on what they're working on, they tend to get a little rebellious. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see uh, how they kind of tweak the companionship factor for Simon over time. Do you think this is a step toward autonomy or independence for astronauts in space? So that like to reduce the dependence on ground control? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, this is directly tied to uh, the ground connection and, you know, it's relatively limited. I mean, but a stepping stone. I, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a direct stepping stone to independent astronauts. Um, it's, a, it's just a tool, right? So for context, um, what Phil's getting at is that currently astronauts who work on the ISS have a relatively strict schedule of, you know, they have sleeping and eating and they definitely have free time and social time, but they have uh, kind of their daily plans generated from mission control and mission control is tightly in the loop of what they do every day. But as you go farther from Earth, 
say to Mars or even to an outer planet where there's a large communication delay, it doesn't really make sense to have people on Earth making decisions and coming up with every plan and then giving astronauts lists of instructions to do. And so you need to kind of rethink the astronaut kind of workflow into an independent team that can sit down and plan out, this is what we're going to do today, this week, this month, and achieve what we need to achieve over the course of multiple month mission. Uh, and also, you know, when they get to a certain situation, you know, problem solve and get past that without uh, Earth and Earth con- ground controllers constantly being in the loop. Um, okay, so let's go rapid fire through uh, three more things that are going to be on board the next CRS mission. Um, one of them is an experiment into cellular biology, um, understanding the effects of microgravity on uh, gene expression, uh, cell growth, and the ability of a model bacterium to transfer electrons through its cell membrane along bacterial nanowires that it produces. These bacteria would be used in microbial fuel cells to make electricity from waste organic material. So are they making electricity using bacteria? Yeah, so this experiment is really interesting, and it's kind of a mixture of biological and, and, well, it's really the field of biomechanics, right? Of how do you build these tiny structures using living things? Um, So basically, uh, the experiment uh, describes exoelectrogenic microbes that can pass electrons through their cell membranes and can kind of be used as fuel cells where the microbes consume... Uh, an organic compound and can break those down and create free electrons. And then those can pass through the microbe uh, so that electrocharge can pass through them and eventually generate some kind of potential difference and thus electricity. Uh, So I'm not a biologist. Uh, We do have a biologist friend, though, we could ask. Um, But it is definitely one of those examples of using the microgravity environment with these kind of nanoscale or microscale engineering and bioengineering uh, processes to make, uh, to do really interesting research. And it's one of those things that might not uh, be a huge breakthrough in space technology that enables to do crazy things in space, but could definitely have applications back on Earth. Another biological experiment on board this next uh, mission is ECOSTRESS, uh, which stands, it's a, of course, it's a backronym that stands for Ecosystem Spaceborne Thermal Radiometer Experiment on Space Station. Um, so this experiment will be a space-based measurement of how plants respond to changes in water availability. Yeah, and this is, you know, a really good sample or a really good example of remote sensing applications and how the ISS can be this really flexible platform. Uh, This kind of experiment using this kind of sensors and technology in the past would have required a whole separate satellite, which means, you know, building a satellite, building the power systems and the, the computing and the navigation and all those separate subsystems just so that this payload could have a platform to do its work in space, and then that has to go on a whole separate rocket launch. But using the ISS, because it's already up there, you can take these sensors on a cargo mission, install them on the ISS, and do that science at a much lower cost than a dedicated satellite would. Um, 
And so that's one of the recurring benefits that NASA takes advantage of with the ISS and even commercial companies like NanoRacks using the ISS as a temporary laboratory in space. All right. Uh, the last thing uh, that we that we pulled out of here that's going to be on board CRS is uh, space coffee. <laughs> um, so an astronaut, Nicole Stott, um, who's actually the first person to paint in space, um, has partnered with Deathwish Coffee and the NASA Food Lab um, to develop uh, astronaut coffee. So astronauts, you know, anything that's liquidy in space is kind of hard to consume. Um, and I imagine they would use instant coffee, like the really bad tasting powdery stuff. Uh, but Deathwish Coffee kind of developed uh, a way with NASA to make coffee that it has the taste and uh, the caffeine content preserved. So like just like a cup of coffee you might have here on Earth, but on the space station. Obviously, this is one of those um, kind of corporate partnerships. Um, and you might be like, oh, well, this coffee brand is just kind of using this, using space to promote itself. And they absolutely are. Which I think is totally yeah. fine. And, you know, you can go to their website and buy the vacuum sealed pouches that they're going to send into space if you really want to. Um, but there's a rich history of NASA partnering with companies and doing that. Uh, you know, Tang, um, the powdered drink, is kind of most famously joked about. Uh, but even the space shuttle had a, a Coca-Cola dispenser or a Coca-Cola fountain on one of their flights. Uh, it's not a good idea to consume carbonated beverages in space. Uh, but uh, the money that the company is paying for, they get value back in advertising exposure. And NASA gets some of those funds to just increase general public awareness of space, but also can use those funds to support other more scientific projects like the ones that we uh, talked about today. And I don't think it's just marketing, too. I think it's important to realize that astronauts are not just, you know, worker bees uh, orbiting above the Earth. And they're not robots. They're people. Um, and I am, uh, uh, me personally, I would probably die without a good cup of coffee. Um, and I definitely have withdrawals after 24 hours. So I feel Nicole Stott's pain. Um, and I, I definitely think it's important to keep developing technologies that make it not horrible to be in space for a long time. Yeah, and it's it's definitely important to seriously consider the dietary needs and, and textual needs, I guess, of astronauts. Um, you know, famously, uh, John Young, on one of his first space flights, snuck aboard a corned beef sandwich because he wanted good tasting food to to have during his mission. Uh, because in the early days of the NASA space program, they had food cubes and. Uh, kind of pure purees that you would think of like baby food and pouches generally not that great um, and so finding that balance is definitely important on paper food cube has all the needs and it's easy to store and it's easy to consume and you know it's the optimal food but obviously it's probably pretty gross exactly and so uh, you know it's definitely important to uh, you know treat treat the humans uh, on board your mission, on board your spacecraft, as humans rather than uh, expensive, hard to maintain cargo. All right, so that's it for cargo resupply uh, mission that's coming up 
later this June. Let's talk about upcoming launches. Prior launches. Um, so there have been many, 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 many rocket launches since the last time we've had an episode, but we want to kind of take a moment to just look at a few unique ones, uh, specifically coming out of China. On May 20th, launching from China's Xinhuao Space Center on the Long March 4C rocket was the Kuiqi satellite, uh, which is actually going to be a lunar data relay satellite. And this is a, the first part of a really interesting program by China to land, to softly land a probe on the far side of the moon facing away from Earth. So this satellite will basically halo around the Earth and the moon at the L2 Lagrange point, uh, which allows it to relay communications from the surface of the Earth eventually to the lander. Um, and so the second part of this mission is the Chang'e 4, which is the evolution of the Chang'e 3, which you may have uh, watched was a soft lander on the moon that deployed a little lunar rover called U2, uh, which drove around the surface of the moon. Unfortunately, it got stuck after just about 350 feet, but the follow-up lander is assigned to land on the far side of the moon and deliver science readings that we haven't gotten good data from in a very, very long time. And so I definitely think it's impressive uh, of how, let me rephrase that. I definitely appreciate how thoroughly and consistently China is working towards uh, learning more about the moon on their pathway to eventually landing Chinese astronauts on the moon over the coming decades. Orbiting the moon, landing on the moon, um you have to solve a lot of really hard technical problems, especially with radiation and all these different vehicle dynamics problems and communications and stuff. So I, I don't know. I think this is extremely valuable for the Chinese space agency to be doing these things. And um, I really look forward to tech development and I'm hoping to see some, uh, some more innovation and, you know, maybe I, I don't know much about these spacecraft uh, or how they work, but I really hope we can learn more about, you know, maybe if they're trying out new technologies that haven't made it to the moon yet, um, I'd be really interested to see that. So next up is another Chinese launch of a Chinese Long March 3A from Launch Complex LC2 at the Zicheng Satellite Launch Center. Uh, so the satellite's called Fangyun 2H, uh, which is a Chinese weather satellite. And what's really interesting is we've covered uh, the NOAA weather satellites which are really uh, remote sensing satellites. So they have a ton of sensors on board that are taking readings of a vast swath of our planet and then relaying that data down to scientists on the ground to, or to meteorologists on the ground to make weather predictions. Uh, but this satellite is actually part of a much larger system where it has uh, receivers and transmitters to actually receive data from weather stations, remote weather stations like buoys out in the ocean, uh, remote outposts out in kind of the rural parts of China, uh, collect all that data remotely and then send that down to meteorologists itself, uh, as well as the sensors it has on board. But it's, it's an interesting uh, different approach to solving the same problem, which is getting a consistent, thorough and complete data set of the Earth's environment for a given region so we can better predict the weather. Yeah, it's really cool. All right, um, another uh, launch, this one from Roscosmos. Uh, Soyuz took additional crew to the International Space Station. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Soyuz uh, MS-09 mission uh, was more interesting than normal, um, just for a variety of, I guess, PR-centric um, reasons. One, the World Cup is has already begun, I guess, while we're recording this on June 14th, since the, the first game was today. Um, but the Soyuz had a giant World Cup logo because it's being played in Russia this year. Uh, and it also was the first time they had a second stage external camera. Um, so we've gotten used to this as part of SpaceX launches where we can see uh, the stages separate and then have a live camera feed uh, as the second stage puts the payload into orbit. But most launch providers uh, will switch down to a simulation view. Uh, so they'll get the telemetry from the stage and then match that with a simulation so you can see a 3D rendering of the uh, the satellite. But anyways, they had the second stage camera. We got to see a wonderful view of the Korolev Cross from the point of view of the rocket. Obviously, the Korolev Cross looks beautiful from the ground. Uh, that's when the four side boosters from the Soyuz detach in unison and they tumble, uh, forming kind of a pulsing cross shape. Um, yeah, they form a pulsing cross shape. Uh, so it's an interesting uh, to see that from a different perspective. And I think it's worth mentioning is that uh, kind of the rising awareness of the general public to space uh, with launch providers trying to launch more frequently, doing these annotated broadcasted live launches, launch streams to kind of promote their own brands, promote space travel in general. Uh, it's definitely good to see that general uh, baseline enthusiasm increasing over time. And that's a perfect way to round out this episode. Um, speaking of the public awareness and interest in space, John D. Clark's um, book, Ignition, The Informal History of Rocket Propellants, just got a reprint this past May. And for those who don't know, um, it's a great book. Uh, John D. Clark was at the forefront of modern rocket propellant development from the late 50s um, up through the 70s. And he kind of recounts his own personal anecdotes mixed with the history um, and all the context in the development of these rocket propellants. I haven't finished the book yet, to be honest, but I'm close. It's not that long, Phil. It, it takes like I six must, hours. I, I only read it on planes. Um, gotta, gotta do what I do and get a new book and just start reading it and then don't stop until it's done. That That's how you read books, I guess. Anyway, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, I'll have plenty of time to read it <laughs> on a plane because me and TJ are going to the Spaceport America Cup in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Uh, you can check out the Spaceport America Cup. We're going to be there as the official podcast sponsor of the Spaceport America Cup. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, for more content, you can check out blog.specscast.com, which has the show notes, including all the references and additional information for this episode, as well as uh, independent articles covering space news throughout the week. Uh, if you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, your podcast service of choice. And if you would like to give us feedback, questions, comments, or suggest new topics, you can reach it to, out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs or at specscast at gmail.com. 